in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is Real Ripe and Real Rotten. It's a podcast where we're taking a look at the highs and lows of your favorite Hollywood artists. Each month we're going to be using Rotten Tomatoes to determine the best and worst film in one individual's filmography. You can listen along, let us know what you think. This is a very special episode though. Uh, my name is Wes Teasdale, I'm here with Clay McCormick. Clay, how are you? I'm good. I'm, uh, I, I don't have a good minor report joke. <laughs> well, we, <laughs> I was gonna, I was Off gonna, to a good start. I was just going to throw it to you. To, uh, this was your uh, brainchild to have a B-roll episode. This is the first of the B-roll episodes. So do you want to explain what we're doing here today with a, a third movie for both Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg? Yeah, um, I had this idea uh, of the idea of doing a, a B-roll um, as sort of like we're looking at the, the highest rated and the lowest rated but there's always, for a lot of these uh, these great filmmakers and actors, there's always a movie somewhere in the middle that I personally don't feel gets talked about enough. Um, and it's it's an excuse to cover one of those movies. And uh, we, we didn't want to start all the way back at Patrick Stewart, although in retrospect, maybe we should eventually circle back to Ridley Scott, because there's probably one or two in there that I would love to talk about. Um so we figured we'd kill two birds with one stone and talk about Minority Report because it's a Tom Cruise movie directed by Steven Spielberg and as far as I'm concerned I think is fairly underrated. Um, if only because it's really, uh, I don't really count AI because, I, I don't know, AI is kind of weird. But uh, this is, Minority Report is really the only, for, as far as I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Wes, if I'm forgetting something, but I think this is... Um, Steven Spielberg's only real speculative sci-fi fiction movie, where uh, unlike um, Close Encounters, which is just an alien thing, or Jurassic Park, which is, you know, a very uh, isolated event kind of sci-fi, this is the only sci-fi where he's really um, in in the Blade Runner kind of sense of sci-fi, where it's a... uh, 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 updating and commenting on trends and and looking into the future uh, as speculative fiction does yeah i guess the only thing would be the other tom cruise pairing which is war of the worlds um and even that one that's still just you know that's an alien alien invasion, invasion movie, movie that takes yep. place in the modern era so I, I don't i don't think that one really uh falls under the same umbrella and maybe i'm giving ai a short shrift i only saw it once um but since that was a uh sort of the picked up project that stanley kubrick never did i kind of don't really count it even though i'm sure it's a fine movie ai is actually the uh well i i guess to go into minority report uh before we started doing this uh minority report i knew was a tom cruise movie obviously Mm -hmm. i never really fully associated it with spielberg and i guess a lot of that has to do with they deliberately uh, decided not to include him on the marketing for this really because of the ai um, blunt, or at least, you know, AI did not do well at the box office. So mm-hmm. they wanted to turn it away from a Steven Spielberg picture and turn it into a Tom Cruise action movie as a way to market it, mm-hmm. uh, which is how I remember it. Uh, it's funny that I never thought of it as a Steven Spielberg movie because on this recent rewatch, it is purely a Steven Spielberg movie. Um, <laughs> and before I get into, we'll talk a little bit about the details of it, I guess, right now. Um, 
Minority Report is a 2002 American neo-noir science fiction film directed by Spielberg, loosely based on the short story The Minority Report by Philip K. Dick, because uh, if you have a sci-fi movie, there's an 80% chance it started off as a short story by Philip K. Dick, I think. Correct. Um, It's set primarily in Washington, D.C. in the year 2054, where there's a division called Pre-Crime, which is a specialized police department that apprehends criminals based on foreknowledge provided by three psychics called Precog. So there's no more murder in the future. Stars Tom Cruise, Colin Farrell, uh, Samantha Morton, and Max, Max von Sydow as Anderton's superior Lamar Burgess. Uh, yeah, it's a, you know, it's it's iconically shot. It was a huge DVD seller when it came out. It didn't really win uh, clean up at the awards or anything, but it was a very well-reviewed movie. I think it's at 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's a, Clay, are you familiar with the Philip K. Dick story? Uh, I'm not. I uh, I've that's one I've never gotten around to reading. Um, the only thing, the only piece of uh, trivia that I think is kind of interesting is that the film version originally started out as um, they were going to do it as a sequel to Total Recall. Yep. And uh, so the precogs were going to be the mutants. And it was going to take place on Mars, and uh, uh, Tom Cruise was going to be uh, Tom Cruise's character was going to be Douglas Quaid. Um, but I can only imagine that the Philip K. Dick story, much like the Total Recall story, is probably like a page and a half long. Yeah, yeah. I I haven't read the Philip K. Dick. I read the synopsis of it just so I'd know what the differences was between the movies, and we'll get into mm-hmm. that as we go along. But there's not too much sort of background information about this. Um, it has music by John Williams. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, the, there's a lot of sort of production stuff about it because it's a very the techniques they've used for making the film with this sort of bleaching process to make everything overlit and everything like that is kind of uh, the main draw, I guess, from a Wikipedia aspect. But I don't find it particularly interesting to read that outside of the way that it ended up looking. Um, it's a very... It, for the purposes of the B-roll, it fits nicely into that weird spot where it is not traditionally seen as a Spielberg film, but it is the kickstart of something we weren't able to talk about Tom Cruise, which is his action star uh, run. Mm. And I think it does both of those things pretty well at this point. Although, you you said you would like this uh, movie. And you think it's underrated? I do. Yeah. I wonder if we're I. I think it's a very I think it's a very good movie. I'd give it like a four out of five. I was actually less impressed with it when I when I watched it for this critical thing the last time I mm. watched it like a couple of days ago. Um, and I think I'll I'll kick it off to you just by saying that I've learned the most of this real ripe and real rotten journey about Steven Spielberg, I think. And I don't like (laughs) Spielberg as a filmmaker, I think. That's fair. Um, He, that's really what I've learned. He does. I mean, he obviously has great movies. He's obviously Spielberg is a very good story person. He has a very strong hold on story and what works as a story in a movie. Mm -hmm. I think that minority report falls into the, criticisms we had before which is he's overly sort of melodramatic and saccharine in moments that don't particularly need it a lot of the time and i don't i think that minority report the worst parts of minority report are the parts that veer from the philip k dick story in my opinion Mm -hmm. which is when he adds this sort of family stuff that's going on in the backdrop uh but yeah why don't you talk about why why you enjoyed it and uh, what you thought about it this recent watch I would I would probably rate it about the same. I would say it's probably a four out of five, uh, mainly because um, I think it's really really tight and it's really really engaging and well written and well executed up until uh, spoiler alert if anyone has not seen it 
Um, but I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you haven't. <laughs> um, up until the rev- up until he uh, Tom Cruise kills uh, what's his name Jacob Crow or whatever his name is the Leo, guy who Leo Crow yeah Leo Crow who through the course of the story he turned it he discovers that Leo Crow is the one that kidnapped and killed his son and then he kills him but then it turns out to be uh, set up I think from that point to the end it gets a little messy uh, because they have to basically they the Tom Cruise killing Leo Crow aspect is the driving force of the entire movie and once they wrap that up they have to kind of expand it a little bit further to uh, into this other conspiracy that's going on in order to kind of pay everything off and make sure that Tom Cruise comes out as a hero which is fine but it's just that it, it gets it gets messy in the in the way that it's executed where you've got like uh, Max von Sydow killing Colin Farrell with a gun that is the same gun that Tom Cruise used that he just uh, then gives to Tom Cruise's wife in a box full of stuff that apparently also included his old eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it's it's just a little <laughs> bit convenient getting to the end. I think it's worth it because the, the last scene is really good, I think. Yeah. Where uh, he's got the uh, the standoff between Cruise and Von Sydow, and you get he gives him two uh, the only two options out of the situation, and he chooses the third one, which is to kill himself. I thought that was that was really good. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think the storytelling and, and the story itself gets a little wonky after after the Leo Crow stuff, but everything up to that point, it feels to me like a really well crafted, almost Hitchcock kind of story. About you know it's the it's it's the uh, quintessential textbook idea of how you're supposed to write a character, which is the character is in one situation, which he knows is is his everyday situation, and then he's all of a sudden torn into something else, uh, into a new situation that he has to deal with, and it feels a lot like a a Hitchcock kind of movie where uh, the hunter becomes the hunted kind of thing, and and it's just. uh, that run through the sci-fi filter with all the uh, stuff with the advertising and the retina scans and all that kind of stuff. I just think it's really well done, and it's got some great action set pieces in it. The I don't think the car chase sequence holds up super well, um, at least effects-wise. But uh, aside from that, I think it's I think it's a, a really a really fun, engaging movie. Cogs declare a victim and a killer. Their name is embedded in the grain of wood. Since each piece is unique, the shape and grain is unique. The shape and grain is impossible to forge. I'm sure you all understand the legalistic drawback to pre-crime methodology. Here we go again. Look, I'm not with the ACLU on this, Jeff. But let's not kid ourselves. We are arresting individuals who have broken no law. But they will. The commission of the crime itself is absolute metaphysics. The pre-cogs see the future, and they're never wrong. But it's not the future if you stop it. Isn't that a fundamental paradox? Yes, it is. You're talking about predetermination, which happens all the time. Why'd you catch that? Because it was going to fall. You're certain? Yeah. But it didn't fall. You caught it. The fact that you prevented it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. You ever get any false positives? Someone intends to kill his boss or his wife, but they never go through with it. How do the precogs tell the difference? Precogs don't see what you intend to do. Only what you will do. Then why can't they see rapes, or assaults, or suicides? Because of the nature of murder. There's nothing more destructive to the metaphysical fabric that binds us in the untimely murder of one human being by another. <laughs> Somehow I don't think that was Walt Whitman. Zara Cinnamon. She developed precogs, designed the system, and pioneered the interface. 
I'd agree with you that it's um, the best part is up until he kills Crow. And yeah. then after that, it has to become a much more generic conspiracy movie at that mm-hmm. point. Like it loses the it, it loses the free will versus determinism angle, which they try to bring it back with Von Sydow at the end about whether or not yeah. he can get out of it. Uh, the Philip K. Dick story ends with the killing of Crow, basically. I was just going to say, if I were to do it, I would have ended it with killing Leo Crow. Yeah. that's, I mean, that's the point that you're driving towards for the entire story. And this is a long movie, too. Like, you could, you could realistically cut everything after that, and it would still be like an hour and a half movie. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, give, I'll give a quick synopsis of the, the K. Dick story, as I understand it. So it's basically the same setup. There's a pre-crime unit uh, where they have these, they are mutants in the story instead of psychics uh, who are able to stop all crime. It's not just murder. And they, uh, it starts off exactly the same way where this Chief Anderton learns that he is going to kill this person that he's never met before and he doesn't know who this person is. And the story goes off through this journey of he discovers the same way that there are minority reports within the precogs of this. So you need all of the precogs to sort of come to a conclusion to re- to read what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the story is him basically getting t- to deal with each of the precogs on an individual level. And he learns through dealing with each of the precogs, some information that causes him to keep going forward. So mm-hmm. he talks to the first precog and it says that he is not responsible for this murder. So he's like, okay, I need to investigate this to figure out how this went wrong. He talks to the second one who says you might be responsible for it. He's like, well, what does this mean? And that drives him to the third one who tells him you're definitely the killer of this. And that's when he runs into Crow, who has a different name in the book. And that person is a another government official who's trying to shut down pre-crime. So, so basically Colin Farrell's character. More yeah, he's the Colin yeah. Farrell character. And so the Anderton kills that person at the end of the book because he wants to protect pre-crime. And this is the only way to do that. He can't let this guy get away with it. And the book is much more... The book in that case is much more about the deterministic angle of it. It's like mm-hmm. all of the information that's feeding you is pushing you in this direction where this is the only outcome that's possible for this. Even though you you have no idea how you got there, this is the outcome that's going to happen. And it's a much sadder ending where mm. I think Minority Report's ending is the worst part of it because I don't think it needs this. Ha- this happy ending feels out of place on some level, but it feels very Spielberg at the same time. Yeah, I think they could have found a way to... Uh... Excuse me. To keep the ending more, a little bit more of a downer, but have, but also have Tom Cruise's character still seem like the good guy. You know. Yeah. Um. You know, it's funny. Uh, that synopsis of the Philip K. Dick story actually answers a question. Well, not a question, but fixes a problem that I have with the movie. And I, I should, let me rephrase that. It's not a problem I have with the movie. If you want to get into the the uh, fake uh, technical ways that precogs work. Um, you can question the fact that Tom Cruise's character would never have met this guy Crow in the first place if it hadn't been for the precogs. Yep. You know, so like if he had just been out of work that day, none of this would have happened. The only yes. thing that is so it's it, it creates sort of a paradox, and they kind of talk about the paradox stuff a little bit, but they don't really, uh, uh, I, they don't really talk about it in the way that it affects this movie because the driving action, all of it is based on 
Tom Cruise uh, knowing he's going to kill this guy. Yeah. Um, but the way that they get him to the point where he does it is completely manufactured. So it, if you kind of backtrack it, it, I don't know, it doesn't totally jive. But it sounds like in the Philip K. Dick story, the person he ends up killing ends up someone he's going to meet anyway. In in the course of uh, his dealing life. with yeah, yeah dealing with pre, de, uh, in the course of dealing with pre crime and the people who are trying to shut it down. That's not so. It sounds like you know if if you use Colin Farrell's character as an uh, example, he's going to meet him anyway. Yep. And he's going to find out what he's up to or what his intentions are anyway. So in that sense, the story f- feels like it makes it works a little bit better. Um, but I think in the movie, I think it's interesting and engaging enough that that's a detail that isn't really that important it, it is if, if that ruins the movie for you then you're not watching the right movie i guess but. yeah i i because i feel it's actually pretty i don't know if i disagree i feel it's i feel it's pretty clean with in terms of like it's not time travel that they're dealing right. with so it's a little bit simpler but it's a it's a kind of time travel in a sense uh just mm-hmm. because of what Cruz knows from this but it's a like, I guess we'll start at the beginning. The, Spielberg's always very good at opening scenes, and the opening scene yeah. of this movie is almost perfect. It, yeah, it's it, really, really great. It lays out everything you need to know about who these characters are. It introduces all the characters. It introduces how pre-crime works. Yep. And to wrap it up, it introduces the idea of very effectively how can this be a judicial process? Like, none, none of these people have done anything. You know what I mean? Like right, the guy, right. as the guy is being let out in handcuffs, he says, "I wasn't going to do anything. I wasn't going to do it." And there's no good way. To, and that's what the Carlin Farrell argument is: How can you know that this was going to happen? You interfered. And Tom Cruise has the that great analogy of he rolls the ball and Carlin Farrell catches it. He says, yep. "Why did you catch it?" He says, "It was going to fall." And, and and the the understanding there is that just because you're able to prevent something doesn't mean that what you prevented was not going to happen had you not been there in the first right. place. Which right. is really, it's a really clean, like everything there is very clean, very easy to understand. And it's funny because a lot of the criticism I read was from people who saying that the story was impossible to follow. And I feel that's a, not really true. I feel Spielberg does a really good job of getting the key components of what the story are and, and laying them out in a very effective way for you to understand what's happening here. Yeah. And even they, they, they go out of their way to make it pretty tight as far as uh, how, at least how uh, the system operates and um, why it operates uh, as effectively as it does. Even like I, the I, I remember the ball thing, like the idea that the uh, the names are laser etched into this ball. But I was like, why? When as I was watching it, I couldn't remember why they did that. I was like, that seems like kind of a overly weird way of to do this, like an o- overly uh, manufactured kind of. Very elaborate, yeah. It could just yeah. print out on a computer screen or something. Yeah, but then they go out of their way to say, well, the reason we do this is because you can't fake wood grain. Yep. And so they do it in, on something that is unfakeable uh, and to tie up that hole. And yeah, and I, yeah, I agree. I think it's uh, th- that opening scene is, is great. Um, I w- as I was watching it, I was thinking, man, they are getting across a lot of exposition in a way that is very enjoyable to watch. Yeah, very, very believable and very yes. yeah. efficient and... It, it really it, it paints everything for you there. They maybe the only key po- uh, component that's left out is Cruz's relationship with his son at some point, which they do in the scene directly after that and everything. But the 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 precog stuff 
I, I think what's interesting about the movie and maybe the short story is the fact that the the precogs work. Like the, yeah, there, yeah. there's nothing, there's nothing really gaming the system here. So, the argument against the like how uh, fair and ethical this is, kind of seems like it's proven that this is actually working on some level. And I think that the maybe the problem I have with the movie is that they take that away because, in my opinion, the ending where they're saying once you know the future, you can change what's happening. Mm-hmm. I don't. That that's not disproving the precogs to me. All that's doing is showing you that as you as you get more information, your future predetermination is not altered, but it shows you how you're going to get to that point. Mm-hmm. You know, like the there there is no the characters don't have free will at some point at any point in this movie because all that the information they're doing is giving them is getting to them to the point that the precogs have already seen. And, right, and, and the, so and the, I was oh, just going to say, in the, in the one point, you know, when it comes to the Leo Crow thing, where it seems like there is free will involved, it still ends up playing out the same way anyway, just not exactly how it seemed. Right. Yeah. So th- that's the. I, I don't think that the out of knowing the future is good enough here. I, I wish they'd come up with a better way to sort of wrap things up than that. But it, it's really just impressive to me that it's never about. It's about a person, Vince Adow, manipulating the system. But the actual, the technology works in this world, which is really fascinating to me. Yeah, and the way the, the length he has to go to manipulate the system is frankly preposterous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although the. In the in the other one, the Colin Farrell scene where he gets killed, which is really just a rip off of L.A. Confidential on every That's level. That's true. Yeah, um, that is, it's almost completely saved by the thing where Vince is like, you don't hear the spiders coming up. Uh, it's yeah, because the precogs aren't around. Yeah, I think that's in some in the scenes in this movie where it gets a little bit dicey story wise. I think the thing that saves it is the actors and just Spielberg. I think he manages to get really great scenes out of some silly stuff, frankly. Yeah. Um, like that scene, yeah, that that part where Von Sydow is talking about, oh, you don't hear anybody coming to get you, that, that, that stuff is really great um, and really overshadows the idea that he figured it out because the wind had changed on the water. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I, I don't, I couldn't remember how it played out. I remembered that Von Sydow was the bad guy. But I couldn't remember exactly how it played out. Um, and when they got to that point, I was like, oh, so is the idea that he's killing somebody in an identical manner at the same time? So, like, I thought I thought basically the, the, the main killing was like a false flag, basically, while he was killing somebody else. Oh sure. Um, uh, so you know, it was like the idea where it's like uh, where two where two planes are flying on top of each other, only one is seen by radar, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but the actual explanation is far goofier. Where he's just they they save they save this woman from being murdered, and then just leave her on the beach. With, uh, they with just, <laughs> yeah yeah asking no questions. They just grab this guy and fuck off, and she's just like. You know, doesn't know what's happening, and then Max von Sato shows up, puts on a second coat and a mask, and kills her in the war. So it's like it's really it's it's kind of it's pretty silly, but uh, the way that they get to it and the way that they execute that scene, I think even works pretty well with the uh, talking to him in the Bluetooth headset and at that big um, yeah, his uh, you know, award ceremony. Yeah, award ceremony, and they set up giving him a gun. I think works pretty good, um, but yeah, the. Uh, 
what was my I going to say about well, my, the... Well, my um, problem with that yeah. was the... Um, I I didn't realize it happened immediately afterwards. Like, I, I kind of yes, would have yeah. accepted if he had lured her back there later on and done the same thing. Maybe the, you know, the precogs would see it, but the tech who had been reviewing would be like, oh, I've already seen this one. It's like a delayed revision that they're watching over and over mm-hmm. again. So... I felt that scene could have been saved by just not having him immediately kill her right after she's a, a, like an attempted murder. Just come back a couple of days later. Maybe you'd have a weird time explaining why she would go back to that same exact lake and everything yeah. with him. But I, I think you're kind of in a rock and a hard place with that stuff. And I think it, it's, it it brings up a lot of questions, too. Like, you know, the way that it plays out, like I said, the the guys show up and they the, the pre-crime unit shows up and just all entirely leaves and she hangs up she hangs around by herself by the lake long enough for the head of the entire system to get over there without being seen yeah she's and, been assaulted uh, like she they, they yeah, it's, not yeah. like, it's not like she was just out there and they arrested someone who is like charging at her she had been assaulted by this guy yeah yeah and uh effectively kill her and then also what does he do with the body because they 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 mentioned that she went missing that's like the only thing that they know is she went missing. Yeah. But I mean, if he's killing her at that moment, does she just drown in the water? Like I guess I feel she's like just in the water. Body. Yeah, that's my that's my understanding. I mean, I guess if you're not looking for someone, if someone is not listed as being dead, there's no reason to look in the place where they were killed. I suppose, yep. but yeah, I don't know. I think it just it brings up too many questions. But hopefully, at that point, if you're into it, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, but, you know, it, it, there are it, it is a few things that could be tightened up a little bit. Well, there's the I mean, I think I think I agree with you. Everything leading up to the Leo T. Crow is really good, although maybe the the one thing that really stuck out to me is the uh, he keeps using his eyeballs that he got transplanted. He uses his old yeah. eyeballs to get into multiple places. Why don't you just also, change the code? Yeah, which is really silly. And, yeah, and <laughs> as as my girlfriend pointed out, his wife uses his eyeball to get into that secret <laughs> Secret, <laughs> into the organ playing guy's yep. room after yep. he has been put in jail. Yes. So even after he's been convicted of murder and put into the pre-crime jail, his eyeball still opens those doors. <laughs> <laughs> That's the let's uh before we get into the sort of broad strokes about the movie. Uh, the, sorry, the, just one more thing about that. As she said too, as we were watching it, and I, I kind of brought that up after it was over. Uh, we were talking about that point, and she said. Um, there are some times where in the movie where they go for cleverness over realism. Yes. And cleverness is, as far as she's concerned, cleverness is better than realism. And I was like, okay, I never really thought about it that way, but I can see that. Because, I mean, it, the idea of her getting in there with the eyeball is great. And then it ends with her putting the eyeball on the keys of the organ and then like a discord organ noise, you know, blaring out. is is It's great. It's a great moment. Yeah. I don't know if it necessarily makes sense, but it's it's a good moment. Interesting. See, I'd... To me, I think there's a lot of moments like that. And to mm. me, they feel that they are taking me out of the movie on yeah. some level. Like, I'm, I'm noticing how weird they are. And... To, to me, I was describing them mostly to Spielberg's influence. Like the, uh, you know, in this sort of dark comedy, uh, not, not dark comedy, in this like sort of dark neo-noir thriller movie, 
when Cruz is trying to get into the the temple or whatever they call it, where the precogs are, and he has the eyeball and he drops them and he's like chasing them comically down the, the yes. thing as they're rolling. It really takes me out of the movie. And the the action set piece at the start where Colin Farrell is when Tom Cruise makes his first escape and Colin Farrell finds him in the car and they're chasing him through the car factory. Mm-hmm. Colin Farrell is playing that like it's a like cartoon boxing match every single time that he runs into Tom Cruise and it was it was really horrible it really took me out of it I didn't like that all those tone shifts felt really awkward to me it was like Spielberg was deliberately trying to not be too serious with the material at some point and he would try to lighten up it feels a little bit like um you know I, I I I I felt like overall it had a big Judge Dredd feel to it um, not not the movie Judge Dredd, but like the concept of Judge Dredd about these uh, and RoboCop to an extent too, um, where you've got this police force that is judge, jury, and executioner essentially, and um, it it felt like it had some of those uh, European or English comics kind of uh, over the top jokiness to it, like I like, like kind of what you're talking about, like they. <laughs> Did you realize that they had batons that specifically make people throw up? Yeah, six sticks, they call them. Yeah. yeah. So they've got uh, anti, anti-personnel anti weapons that just make you puke everywhere. <laughs> and then they've got, like, their guns are these weird, like, sound wave rifles yeah. that just, like, knock you into shit comedically. Yep. Um, and it felt it felt a lot like a 2000 AD kind of uh, comic, like an English uh, an English comic. Or, um, and I it's, it's weird because I kind of like that stuff. It's. I think in a different movie, if a if a different person had directed it, that stuff would be a lot more towards the front. See, I I liked it because I um I thought it felt consistent. And one thing I was doing yeah. in my in my research here is that Spielberg uh, really went sort of like around the tech industry and like he organized a meeting where he flew tech leaders out to talk to him about what they thought the future would be like in fifty years, mm-hmm. and the. Like the the weapon stuff there really feels like society is eventually going to start moving towards very effective non lethal weaponry, right? right. So that right. that's kind of what it is. Like the the six stick just makes you so sick that you can't escape from the police officers. Which, you can't fight which back. yes is very effective, but also hilarious. <laughs> it's also hilarious, yeah. And the uh, the I love the, I love the prop of the sound concre- uh, concussion gun. Like the, yes. you, sort of, you spin it around and then you shoot and it's like this big sort of concussive blast. I, yeah. I liked that. It's just a, it's it's funny. It, it struck me a lot of like E.T. Spielberg has all these things coming in that he doesn't really, he just likes to have them be a part of the movie and he doesn't mm-hmm. want to sort of go into why this is the case and stuff. But I, I thought it was effective on some level, the, uh, the new tech and everything. They're pretty predictive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the most interesting part about it uh, in in the way that they kind of nailed it more or less is with the uh personalized ad system that's everywhere yeah um in some places you know as 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 is the way in these movies uh you've got them still using like hard drives and stuff to an extent which is not really the way it works now yeah um but they do have a lot of uh 
personalized advertising that even though it's not the way that it is in the movie where it's actually projected to you like holographically, that shit, that's how it works on the internet. You know, yes, it, yeah. it, it doesn't look directly into your retina. Well, maybe it does now with the new phones that can do that shit. But it calls you um, by name sometimes. It says, hey, Wes, yeah. look, look at this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or, it, you know, pinpoints your location and, and uh, you know, lets you know what hot, sexy singles are in your area. So are the are the ads in this movie actually saying things out loud that everyone can hear? I don't know. That's actually a good question. I couldn't figure that out. Uh, I feel like I want to say yes, but it seems like it would be such a shit show when people are getting off the train of just people <laughs> right, ads yeah. yelling names and stuff. I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I haven't figured that out. And it was saying when he goes into the gap, it gives some potentially very personal information. It's like, hey, yes. you were here last time buying panties, a set of three panties or something. It's like, you don't need to broadcast this stuff out loud. I, I'd like to think that it's not, although I, was, I think I got the impression from the movie that it is actually announcing this to everybody, which is strange. Um, but I guess yeah, that ties I th- into... I think when he goes into the gap, as he's walking away, you can still hear it talking to other people. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I assume. I guess it means must it must just you know call you out by name, which is I guess yeah, that's very uh, intrusive. <laughs> well, I guess it's just the the Facebook slide, right? Like people will eventually yeah. start giving up their privacy on that on some level, just have that yeah, sort of convenience. It's more or less the larger scale version of scrolling down through Facebook and seeing like, oh, your friend Wes liked this thing. Yep. Yep. You would like it too. Here, check yeah. it out. And yeah. the. Uh, uh, I really I like the way that they used the ads too. Uh, not the ads. The uh, the news broadcast felt very much like RoboCop. Felt that that kind of thing where they get across exposition through uh, uh, news broadcasts that are presented in such a way where you see how um, TV screens have become just like parts of walls and shit now. Yeah. And it's yeah. I, I think it's it's well done. The uh, the guy with the paper on the bus is they've got the technology. It's actual paper now, but it changes. Uh, yeah, depending that on was what the one is. thing where even in uh, even as recently as two thousand two, they didn't realize that people aren't going to be carrying magazines anywhere anymore. Let alone <laughs> magazines with moving covers. Yes, although, do you think if the technology got good enough, people would go back to the paper, or would they stick with tablets? <sighs> I can't. I, I the tablets are just so simple and it's so compact like i i've thought about i've thought about that too because i like i like books i like comics i like the hard copy comics but when it comes to traveling no way in hell am i bringing that shit with me like yeah, i yeah. i am going to a uh a, a comic con this weekend in, in dc awesome con if you happen to be in the area please stop by um and i was thinking about bringing a book with me to read and i was like well the book that I'm reading is like a 500, 600 page book. I'm not going to put that in my bag that I'm going to be carrying with me on a plane. I can just get something easier that I can read on my tablet. So yeah. I, I don't think, especially for people who are commuting, I don't see that happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I wonder. I Because I, I know my, my wife doesn't like uh, Kindle and stuff like that because she prefers the paper physical form to an extent mm-hmm. like she won't use the Kindle and everything like that. But I Well, I honestly, I think it depends on what it is. Like I think, I think for magazines, I highly doubt it. Yeah. Like something that's just that consumable like magazines and newspapers and stuff, I don't really see people swinging back the other way. Um, at least not on a large scale. But books, yeah. I mean, books is a different, it's a different feeling. You know, it's like, it, it's not entirely dissimilar to vinyl records where yep. it's 
people get a different sort of atmosphere and different feeling from it just because of the media that is presented on that you don't get from digital. The um, same with comics too. Yes, yeah, it'd be the same thing for that. Uh, let's see here. So for the we we talked a bit about Spielberg. Uh, we'll we'll also tie this into Cruz, I guess. Here we had, we had some criticisms of Cruz as an actor in his earlier '80s uh, films, which is we watched Risky Business and Cocktail. Uh, this is Action Star Cruz. Mm-hmm. What would you think of Action Star Cruz? I thought he was good. Um, I thought, you know, he when he's in a movie like this, um, with a good team around him, he usually puts in a pretty good performance. And this is. Uh, this is post Eyes Wide Shut, so he's learned how to act by this point. He's and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, he's he doesn't have a ton to do emotion-wise. Um, this is a very good vehicle for uh, the Tom Cruise intensity filter. Yeah, and some good uh, I think running. He gets some good running in in this one. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't do he doesn't do a lot of yelling though. Usually he gets one good like yell in these movies, uh, but I don't think he really has one. Maybe maybe when he kills Crow, I can't remember. He's um, I was looking at Cruz's filmography. He's he's worked with so many famous directors. Like yeah. it's, it's it's funny how his career is really odd to me because now I only think of him as this action movie star, mm. and he's he's worked with like pretty much every famous director you can think of for the past 20, 30 years he's, he's done a movie for, and it's kind of remarkable on some level, like Scorsese and stuff. It just, it's, it's weird that they would get paired at some point. When did he work with Scorsese? Uh, am I not thinking of the right thing? Let me see here. But I can, uh, let me check this Maybe out. He did. I can't remember. Off the Isn't Scorsese the, uh, the pool movie? Oh yes. Yeah, you're right. That's a good yeah. point. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Great. Oh, that's another movie we could have done. That's a great, well, if we ever get to the the real ripe, real rotten on Martin Scorsese, it's going to be a tough toss up for me what to do for a B reel because uh, there's a lot I, of options. I, basically, the entire the entire concept behind this idea was to eventually get to talk about the King of Comedy, which is I think <laughs> uh, Scorsese's best movie. Yeah, but The Color of Money is another really good one to talk about because that's a great movie. I think that uh, I think Cruz is good here. I think this is the reason he's settled into this action thing. Besides the fact that it makes a ton of money, is it's a very good. They're very good vehicles for his style of acting. I yeah. think uh, where he is, as you were just saying, I would listen to the cocktail thing again. He's the generic white guy who mm-hmm. who is built believably to be an action star he can sell the intensity stuff and he doesn't have to emote too highly beyond sort of intensity and then uh that that's his like wheelhouse i think for tom cruise yeah and if you if you look at this movie um the only time he does emote he does it like they had to manufacture him to be a drug addict in order to get him to emote in this movie yeah because like the drug thing i don't really know why it's in there other than to make him less of a I, I guess when you think Tom Cruise or his type of character you think someone who's straight laced down the middle but the drug addict thing makes the uh, I guess it could go into making the audience question whether or not he is a murderer when that stuff starts happening or whatever but it's really yeah. it's really ultimately pointless um, except for to have that scene where he gets all doped up and, and watches home videos of his kid yeah see I mean I don't know what the point of the drugs is either. Obviously, in the in the sort of scope of the movie, it seems like society was ravaged by that drug, like yeah. fairly recently. So, 
However, you don't really see that outside of him. You don't you don't see other people using this drug all the time, right. even though it's supposed to be super popular and it's what which, created the precogs. Which is something I'd like to talk about in in a little bit more detail in a couple minutes, actually. And the uh, like, I I liked the the some of the thematic stuff with Cruz's character, like is is interesting the way that they set it up. That you know his job is to be obsessed with the future and what will or what might or will happen. Yet the character himself is obsessed with the past and reliving the past. They don't really play into that too much. That doesn't really come back to do anything, but it's a great setup for the character. Um, his the the kid stuff just kind of strikes me as unnecessary, and it's really I might be being biased by the Philip K. story where I I didn't that kind of stuff wasn't necessary at that mm-hmm. point because, and I think that this is maybe my distinction here of what I like from sci-fi is that in these kind of sci-fi movies, I like the idea more than the right. Spielbergy cinematic aspect of it. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not attracted to the whole broken family thing going on. And like the precogs are from an abused, uh, a drug addict woman. And it's like, this is all fine to get the plot going, but I'm, I thought the movie did such a good job with the deterministic angle of like you cannot escape what is going to happen to you that that's what I wanted to focus on and that's what the Philip K. Dick story is all about. Do you understand these rights? You're not going to kill me? Do you understand these? You're not going to kill me. Don't go through with this. My family gets nothing. Okay? You're supposed to kill me. He said you would. He? Who's he? I don't know. He called me in my cell. He told me I'd be released if I went along and my family would be taken care of. If you did what? If you did what? If I acted like I killed your kid. Okay? Yeah, I it doesn't surprise me that they added the 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 family stuff in there cuz I mean <clears throat> I think that move the story that you're describing is also the stuff that I like, but I also think it makes for a much uh um at least theoretically makes for a much smaller um audience movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the especially when you get into these more complicated like hard sci-fi concepts they can feel a little sterile, and um, adding something in about his son. I actually, I actually don't mind the stuff about his son because I think it, I think that it adds a credible uh, backstory to why he got into pre-crime. Yep. Um, it's not. It's it's sort of uh, it's not entirely dissimilar to Batman, sort of where he was, you know, affected by anonymous violence or anonymous crime to the point where he has decided to make sure that that can never happen to anybody ever again. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, I think it works. I think, um, I think the scene where he actually loses his son is really good. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, that's a really fantastic, um, it's, it's really well structured emotionally sort of like it's, it's a right. weird, a weird thing that is like heartbreaking and how it happens and the sort of mystery of what goes on. You never really get a sense of it's great. Yeah. And I think, uh, the whole, uh, chain of events is really good. Um, like going, it's terrifying, you know, it, going under the water and then seeing your, your son's feet there 
and you're kind of looking up and you can kind of see him through the water and then the watch just falls in and you pop yep. up and he's not he's not under the water for more than a minute and then yep. the kid's just gone like that and it's it's really scary and also they um it's a neat little tie-in that didn't do too much of it but it explains why he can go into the ice bath for so long right yeah which is yeah. kind of a neat little tie back um the what the i was thinking about the tom cruise oh the the one thing that i do think that the spielberg thing does better than the the book having not read the book but just on the synopsis is that the crow being a potential child abuser murderer character to me is a much better payoff than in the book him just trying to kill the guy who's trying to shut down his department yeah that that sounds to me like a high concept ending to a high concept story like in, yeah. in that in that sterile sci-fi story that's a great ending and it makes a lot of sense because it is it is an ending that is dealing with the entire concept of the story itself um but in, the leo crow child molester angle deals with the emotional through line for tom cruise which yeah it is it is much more satisfying from a uh a character standpoint than it <laughs> If it if then if it were to be like a matter of paperwork, essentially. Yes, it feels the the shooting crow in the movie feels much less avoidable than not killing a guy who's kind of your competitor does. Right. You know, like you feel. I know that the the book and the movie are arguing what you feel is kind of irrelevant because you would do whatever you were going to do. There is no there is no free will in this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The the emotional aspect of the child abuse makes it just seem like the audience is just like, yeah, I guess he would have to kill him at this point when he like, you can't yeah. walk away from this. And it makes him choosing not to kill him that much more effective. A big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, when, I mean, it's, it's great when he gets to that point and he just starts very, uh, emotionally distraught reading the Miranda rights to him. That was yeah. really good. Yeah. And it, even the, um, it's, it's it's it is really well written. I mean, the the line "Goodbye, Crow." When you see it the first time, you're like, "Oh, he's obviously saying it because he's going to kill him," and then he's right. really just saying "Goodbye, Crow." Um, it, it's it's clever. There's a, there's a lot going on there. I do feel that the I don't know if they needed to because the way that it changes to the point where he kills Crow doesn't a hundred percent jive with what the precogs saw, mm-hmm. like. I don't know if you need. I I feel like I was watching a scene where you see him shoot him the entire way. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but it feels like they should have had a, a little bit more of a spastic vision of what happened to him. Although maybe I'm being unfair at that point. Yeah. In terms I of the precogs, know. I mean. Yeah. Um. Maybe. Uh. But I. Yeah. I don't know. I think it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, I think it doesn't matter. But I also think that like theoretically, that could be intentional. Because the killing of Crow maybe was originally going to be just a cold-blooded shooting him through the window. Yeah. But knowing what he knows, he makes that decision uh, to not kill him, but he can't escape, you know, the, the falling ball kind of situation. Yes. Um, and it's just the same thing. This It does happen, just not exactly the same way that uh, they thought it would. My big problem with that whole thing, though, how the hell... Does Max von Sydow put him in that hotel room knowing that's where Tom Cruise is going to end up? That's the big problem with the whole paradox. It's like, how how, how are they going to get him to that point? Yeah, Unless to I show up something. at that hotel room. Yeah, did I miss something? 
how would you do this? No, I don't. I, well, wait a minute. Now, now maybe I, maybe I'm wrong because they do because when he does when he does find him, he's been checked into that hotel for like a while. So yeah, maybe maybe it works. I mean, I, I guess you're just hoping that Vin, Vincent, I would just know that maybe he, he's a good enough cop where he'd be able to find him at some point. Um, mm-hmm. Because what's the the downside is he gets arrested and he never figures out that Vincent out killed that woman. Right. So there's only yeah. upside no matter what the outcome is, whether he gets arrested or he finds Crow. Yeah. And, yeah, I guess. I guess the the problem for me is if you backtrack what von Sydow's plan was, what if you're looking at it directly from von Sydow's side, how do you start that plan in motion? Do you just tell Leo Crow to hang out in that hotel room? Like Ye- you know what I mean? Like what's yes. the actual what is his actual uh, uh, set, setting the domino in motion moment of his plan. All right, so we try to figure this out. He he, Van Sydow only initiates this all after Tom Cruise has found that those files have been deleted from the precog memory banks. Right? He yeah. goes to Van Sydow and he says, "Who is this woman?" Van Sydow says, "Oh Jesus, uh, Anderson's digging around. He's going to find out that I killed this woman. Let me set up something here." He hires Leo T. Crow to sit in that hotel room. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I guess you have to think about it as it is not time travel. Like, I think it's problematic if you think of it as time travel, but mm-hmm. all the precogs are doing is telling you because of the way that the universe is acting so far, this is going to be the outcome of that, of the way things are. So, because every the, the the movie's saying that everything is deterministic, like every causal event leads to another thing. And if you have perfect information of all the events that are happening, which is what the precogs have, mm-hmm. the precogs can predict what will be the outcome of that. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a problem of knowing that you have to get Crow somewhere specific. It's just you have to create it and then it will happen if the causal links are strong enough to get you there like i know it's not perfect because it's a movie talking about it, but it, it doesn't hang me up i guess would be the way to yeah, think about I, it it doesn't hang me up either it's just you know i, I like to think about some, some of these things when when uh analyzing these movies especially ones that are so tight um like the, the stuff you were t- talking about earlier um some of the go- goofier aspects like the wife getting in with the eyeballs and why is he still in the system I think that stuff stands out to me in a movie like this because the rest of it's fairly tight. Yeah. And so I wonder, you know, it's like, well, if they went through so much trouble to make this make sense, why didn't why doesn't this make sense? You know, it's it's not a it's not really a knock against the movie so much. It's just uh, an interesting thought exercise. I feel there's a, there's a lot of moments. The the moment that sticks out to me is when he meets the female gardener creator of pre crime and she kisses him. I don't understand. That. Oh yeah, <laughs> is, am I just supposed to? T- is that character just supposed to be a little wacky, or is I there guess. something else going on? I guess. Also, I'm not a big fan of the uh, sentient sentient vines. I thought that yeah. was silly. That was a little <laughs> yeah. bit. That was a little bit out there. The, it it's, feels like I, if well, it feels like that's a um, that might be another Philip K. Dick story, and then and someone likes it, and they're like, yeah, just throw that oh, in yeah. too because I like that. Well, uh, my my feeling of it was um, uh, Spielberg was a little bit too uh cgi happy 
Oh, maybe, yes. Yeah. Because, like, I, I didn't like that because it doesn't feel like the same kind of sci-fi as the rest of it. My big... One of my big pet peeves with CGI stuff is CGI characters or CGI inanimate characters, usually inanimate or animals, that are that act like humans. And those spider things... I didn't. I liked the concept, but I didn't like the way that they like talk to each other like people, basically. Like you very, see very them. Spielbergy. It's that. Yeah. that to me is all Spielberg. You know. You know, I I don't I don't know if it's. I mean, he probably has a hand in it, but I think a lot of people were doing that around that time. I don't think you you get it quite as bad as you used to, but yep. I think it was just a matter of having control over everything to such an extent you could like, oh yeah, let's have this rat do like a double take to the camera or something. You know, like right, that kind of right. stuff, which I, yeah. I just can't stand it. I mean, the spider thing is just, I find them scarier if they aren't as humanized yes. as that. You know, if they're yeah. just these sort of little robots that are moving around. And it's funny because I love the, which I think is a very Spielbergy shot, the shot where they're over the uh, the apartment complex, the camera's looking down at people yeah. moving yeah. around. It's that's a really cool shot. And it's uh, it, it's neat to, to, you know, people all are arguing. They stop arguing when the spider things come up. The mother with the scared children just tells them to look at it. It's, it's very effective. And I think that having those robots be more just driven by, like, their robotness and, like, getting the job done would be more effective than having them. I think they, like, tap each other on the shoulder at points when they're trying to yeah. show each other which way to go. Yeah, that that stuff I, I'm not a huge fan of. I think that stuff um, ages poorly in some of these movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, well, I was just going to say, I, I wanted to talk about um, the, uh, you were saying how the, the, the drug stuff doesn't, um, you don't really see any, how that the drugs are affecting anybody outside Tom Cruise, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that is, that and the movie as a whole is a really good example of what I've talked about many times up to this point, which is understanding and constraining the scope of of the world of your story because the this entire story is is a is essentially about a uh local business chain that's on the verge of going national right because pre-crime is only used in dc and it's it's on the verge of possibly becoming a national thing but you don't see how pre-crime affects anything outside of dc arguably you don't see how pre-crime affects anything outside of tom cruise because yep. you're not seeing um, you're not seeing very much uh, public response either way. Uh, you're seeing how you're seeing how it affects people from the way that they're kind of like afraid of it. But you're not seeing any sort of discourse of uh, people being upset with it or people supporting it the way they usually do in these types of movies. Um, and all the action that's happening is, is 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 a very tight circle for an idea that when you think about it. The applications of it, you could do anything. Like this could be a very, very large story if you wanted it to be. And the fact yeah. that they keep it so tight, I think, really works really well. And um, I saw somewhere that they're think I think they're developing a TV show based on this. And I was thinking that actually, there's a you could do that pretty easily given the possibilities of this concept. Um, even the little things, like uh, one of my favorite details is uh, that. Since there's no murder anymore, there's no need for homicide cops. So, yeah. like, any cop can be a pre-crime cop. And so you've got one guy who I think Colin Farrell asked him what he did before this, and he said he was, like, a, a treasury cop or something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. 
And like those little details are great because it gives you it gives you a bit of of how the world works outside of the story, but not to the point where it derails everything. And the drug thing, I think, falls under that umbrella uh, because, yeah, this drug seems like I, I think the drug thing might be the one where I don't think it necessarily benefits the story because the drug thing seems like it should be a big a bigger deal than it is but it's not even a big deal inside the story like you could take that whole drug thing out and it wouldn't change anything yeah and they they call the drug clarity i think which seems like it's going to be implying something about mm-hmm. what it does but it doesn't really have much of an impact whatsoever outside of it gives a little bit of leverage to Colin Farrell to bring down Tom Cruise kind of mm-hmm. like that's that's kind of it. Um, I do I do love though it do I do love that they give you the the uh, drug dealer who has both of his eyes removed yes. before you start getting any of the retina scan based advertising stuff. Yeah. So yeah. at at so when you see it at first it's just like overly creepy, but then as the movie goes on it's like oh shit that was actually makes a lot of sense. That's the, it's the, this watch was the only time I picked up on that. I thought yeah. he was just supposed to be a creepy effects guy, and I did not realize that he does that so that they can't track him. Like that's yeah. the only way to be free in this. It's, uh, it's creepy, and it's also really good foreshadowing for what take, happens later. What do you think of? Uh, well, I guess we'll get a few, a few. Do you have anything else you wanted to specifically talk about, or should we just go to like general sort of uh, questions about it? Or uh, just to uh, to go on the, the eyeball thing, um, you could also extrapolate that he possibly sold his eyeballs. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for drugs, basically. Or, he or is else. Mr. Hironaka or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, overall. Yeah, I guess he, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I guess he, he could have uh, sold them. There's a, there's a whole, that little shady underbelly. Uh, I know the other characters sort of remark on like, I can't believe you're going down there, but it, it, it felt a little bit um, underexplored. I guess you're just supposed to, are we supposed to assume that outside of DC, everything is chaos? Is this like Delta City? In RoboCop, yeah, I don't know, and I, I, I actually appreciate that they don't really get into it that much. Um, yeah. I think, I think they go on the assumption that murder is, uh, like, let's put it this way: even though murder is not, well, I haven't seen its latest latest statistics, but let's just say for for sake of argument that murder is not currently like going crazy. Right, sure. it's not like 1970s New York, yeah, uh, everywhere. Um, even though it's not awful, if this technology existed, I don't think it would matter. I think if they had the technology to uh, eliminate the concept of murder entirely, even if the murder rate was only like very, very minimal, they would still probably use it. Yeah. Yeah, I. I'd agree. Like I, what's funny is that uh, the technology doesn't really. It, it goes outside of what how people would perceive how they live their lives. But the movie is saying that the technology works. The mm-hmm. only problem with it, as the characters say in the movie, is that the human error or humans can inter- interfere with it, and that's mm-hmm. where the problems will come from. So, it, it'd be an interesting thing to have the to have this technology come to life and say you got arrested for a future murder, like it would be, and to know that the technology is infallible, to know that this is going to happen, you are going to kill somebody. What a weird, it's a very weird um, flip on how we live our lives to this point. It would feel very, it would feel very unjust. I'd have a hard time. I wouldn't know if people would like this technology to exist in real life or not. Oh, I think it would be terrible. 
Yeah. Like, I mean, it, if the, it, it, it is, a, it does ask really interesting questions about yourself though. When like, cause they, they, they talk about how, uh, uh, pre-planned crime, pre-planned murder is basically doesn't exist anymore because of this technology. So the only thing that they get is like crimes of passion. Yeah. And it is fascinating to think, and that's kind of part of what they're doing with the story here. It's uh, They say that they can detect it like f- up to four days out before it happens, right? So for, what for if premeditated, get, yeah. What's that? For premeditated stuff. Yeah, for premeditated. So like... What does that say about you if you're living your life seemingly normally and then you get arrested because three days from now you're going to kill somebody? Yep. It's a, it's a really – it is a very interesting concept. But, I mean, I guess the – on a fundamental movie level, what is triggering the precogs then? Because yeah. I don't understand the difference between the premeditated aspect and the crime of passion aspect because, as I understand it, the – both of them are kind of the same thing, except that in one case, a person decides something and in another case, they just decided immediately before. But the precogs aren't reading people's minds. You know what I mean? They're reading the the future is determined no matter whether or not the crime is a crime of passion or a crime right. of premeditation. So right. I know that they do it for story purposes here. But in in the real world, I wonder if there would be if the precogs existed. I don't think there would be that distinction. I think that they know the future basically they know what is going to happen and so you they could they could arrest you at birth because they know in 30 years you're going to kill somebody right and uh you know that was one of the things i was thinking about as far as the max von Sydow thing goes it's like well what are the parameters of the of the precog's powers is it is it limited to only only the event cuz if you if it can predict things for days out and pre-planned murder is easy to catch like where does that where does that bar start so theoretically shouldn't they have been able to catch von Sydow as soon as he was like you know what i'm gonna set this person up so i can kill this woman that's true where is it like what is it what is what is setting like you're saying what is setting them off is it the actual event so they can only see outside of the couple minutes of the event or is it just as soon as the idea forms, then they can, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. The, the, the software is just very good at scrubbing out all the video of people sitting at their kitchen table, like scratching their chin, thinking yeah. about like how they're going to do like, huh, I should kill Barbara. I should do that at some point. But yeah, that, that's the, I, obviously they're doing this for story uh, thriller purposes, but the, the technology itself would be in uh, like a real world application would be much more difficult to sort of it, get around. It would be cool too to see the story, see this story um, from a different angle where maybe someone is abusing the system and they do start widening the net uh, in ways that are not entirely ethical. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and how do you fight back against that in court or something? Oh, one last, yeah, one last thing you just reminded me. So, so the court thing, what is going on with the prison here? I don't know. In what in what sense? Well, so there's it doesn't all, seem very. It doesn't seem like a very efficient prison. Well, they, so what they do is that when you get co- uh, convicted of this pre crime, they put a thing called everything's very religiously themed, which I don't know. I don't know if that's over the top or appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. They put a thing called a halo on you. 
you go into like a holodeck type thing. You go into a little tube and you sit there and you're frozen. But they seem to imply that your mind is active, even though you can't move. And the prison, the prison guard says that when you're in the halo, it's like the best time ever and all your dreams come true. So why do they do that for those people? Why are the people so afraid to go into it if it's a good place to be? And also, why are they sort of rewarding pre-crime with a happy eternity? And also... Shouldn't if the only thing that you're really doing now is stopping crimes of passion, shouldn't you theoretically give them a lighter sentence? Because they have they're not they're not the cold blooded killer type. Yeah, you've because you've stopped them from killing somebody, and if it is a crime of passion, theoretically that would mean that you could just rehabilitate them easily yeah yeah but i don't know i guess that goes into the idea of the paradox that they talk about with the ball dropping it's like well yeah you stop them from killing that person but they were still going to do it right so yeah it's it's a it's a really fascinating idea and yeah that prison just doesn't seem like it makes a ton of sense uh like it's a cool visual but well i I, I did like that they all looked like tombstones kind of yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that the trade-off, right? Where this this society's determined you haven't actually done anything. So we can't like brutally punish you. So we'll give you kind of a nice punishment. Is that the trade-off that they had to make where I guess because because you haven't actually killed anybody, we have to remove you from society, but we can't let you suffer too much. So we'll give you a happy time. I guess. Yeah. It's actually one of the uh, uh send them to the village instead. Let me know what you think about this. It's actually one of the sort of theories about the movie is that after Anderton gets haloed, the rest of the movie is his dream sequence. Ooh, really? Yeah. Interesting. The only, the the best criticism against that idea is that in his best of times, his son would be reappear. That's true. Yeah. Well, yes, but I mean, it does end with not only closure for his son but he gets back together with his wife and they're having another they have another kid so should they they have announced that it's a boy should she have come in and said it's a boy if they wanted to play that up then yes probably yeah but you know that's 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 interesting i had never thought about that before that's that's uh, a fascinating way to to handle it i mean i would say my biggest response negative response to that would be That it turns out to be, uh, I guess because you see so much of it from outside of his point of view after that point. You do. You see you uh, s- his wife yeah. talking to Van Sydow and stuff, yeah. And and if at, up to that point, Tom Cruise doesn't know that Von Sydow is the one who killed the woman, I don't think, right? Uh, does he, he gets? I don't know off the top of my head. I thought he did. I thought he knew it. No, because he would have told his wife, wouldn't he? Yeah, and his wife finds out because he slips up with uh, when he's talking about it. Because I was going to say, if if he doesn't know at that point that Von Sydow is the killer, then he understands him to be his. He understands Von Sydow to be his friend. Yeah. So yeah. there's no reason why in the Halo he would project that that would be the, outcome. Could be the killer. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah, that's. I, I'd find it. I, I find it interesting. I, I don't know if I'd find it to be an effective ending for the movie. Although I don't think the movie ends particularly effective uh, in the first place. But um, 
best scene to you? We'll do a couple quick questions. Best scene. Um, that opening scene's really good. Yeah, that's, that that's my answer, too. Yeah. That scene's really great. I actually, you know, I hadn't put together the L.A. Confidential thing, but uh, I would say I also really like the the Colin Farrell getting shot scene. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I think maybe that's because, maybe it is, it's because it's familiar, because uh, that scene in L.A. Confidential is awesome, too. I, it, yeah, it, I, we will have to do LA Confidential at some point. What do you get to? Who is it? Curtis Hansen or something did that one? But the yeah, uh, or Russell Crowe or I right. probably won't end up doing Kevin Spacey movies. But uh, <laughs> Guy, Guy Pierce would be the only other option. Yeah, Guy Pierce that'd be a good one. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So the I think that the opening is my favorite scene. I don't like the Colin Farrell scene just because Colin Farrell feels to me a very pointless character in this entire. Well, I think he. I noticed he's playing it very... He is playing it as though he is the villain, and he wants everybody to know he is the villain. Yeah. And I think that's intentional to be a misdirect when it turns out he's actually on... He's he's just a cop. He's on Tom Cruise's side, more or less. Which is the way the Philip K. Dick story went. He had a... In the book, he has an assistant who has that... Who is that role. He's not really the general he kills at the end, but he has a... Anderton has an assistant that he is suspicious is trying to undermine him the mm. entire time. So he thinks that he's that, that character. Yeah, so I guess... I think he probably goes a little too far with it. Um, and the, the the twist isn't... With him is not as satisfying as his, uh, as his mustache twirling might yeah. imply it to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I thought he was, I thought he was all right. I think he's better. I think he's better in the latter half of the movie when he doesn't have to do so much mustache twirling. Yeah. Although, you know, everything outside of that fight scene. Yeah. Yeah. When (laughs) my girlfriend actually, uh, um, called out the point where, uh, uh, Tom Cruise gets built into that car. And he kind of pops up and like winks at them as it drives away. And then yeah. uh, Colin Farrell does like the punching his hand, punching his yeah. own fist thing. <laughs> yeah. And she goes, I have never in my life felt the need to do that in the real world. And I no, was like, that's, yeah, that's, it's, a very, it's a very classic sort of like tough guy frustration. thing. Yeah, I, I've yep. never ever once felt the, so frustrated just to punch my own hand like that. That's the that's the thing I couldn't remember. That the, Him punching, it feels like it's a kind of an overacting, goofy thing to do. And yeah. that's why I don't like that scene, because that whole chase scene to me feels kind of goofy on that, that I way. I do think it's a it's a character affect, though, because he does it later um, oh, really? again, and it's it's not the same kind of situation. It's, it's, it's a similar type of... Uh, uh, exclamation moment, but he does it a lot subtler. I can't remember where it is exactly. It might be after. It's either after they find the evidence at Leo Crow's place, or it might be right as he calls out the thing about the changing water. He does it like you know, just like as an exclamation kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I feel there's a little bit of a missed opportunity here with them because when after the crow after crow gets killed and cruises on the run again mm-hmm. colin farrell's character comes in and so shows that he's the only cop in this area who's actually effective at analyzing a murder scene because yeah. these cops haven't had to do that in a long time mm-hmm. and i thought that was a real there was like oh they should have done more with that he should have been he should have been more evidence-based like an old-timey investigator and these pre-crime cops are all about just stopping what's going to happen and they don't they aren't very good at uh, figuring out a situation as Mm -hmm. it unfolds Mm -hmm. they didn't really do that Um, again that's something i think 
if you wanted to expand the story, you could have really got into that. Um, I don't know if I think it probably would have complicated things too much here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that would be interesting. You could do it in the show. They could do it like have a Mulder and Scully situation where one of you, you got two pre-crime partners. One of them is like a total pre-crime guy and the other guy is like from the streets. Right. He's from New York and not D.C. Basically, yeah. he's got to come down. Uh, is this John Williams' most forgettable soundtrack? Yes, 100%. I didn't I, even realize he did the music for it. I didn't realize there was music in yeah. this movie until I read afterwards that John Williams did the score. Apparently, he came in very, very late and felt very rushed, and this was the best that he could do um, because it's it's eminently forgettable. I didn't notice oh, yeah. anything that was going on. I just thought uh, of something. Doesn't Demolition Man also take place in D.C., or is that L.A.? I think it's D.C., but I'm not sure. Let me show, Let me look this up. Because Demo if it is D.C., Man. is one of these movies a sequel to the other one? Did they have to institute pre-crime after the... Uh... Oh, it's LAPD. Oh, it's L.A. Damn it. Yeah, yeah, LAPD. What the hell's the name of Wesley Snipes' character in that? Simon Phoenix, Phoenix. something. Yeah. Simon Phoenix. Yeah, they had to impl- they had to impl- uh, implement uh, nationwide pre crime after the Simon Phoenix debacle in the LAPD. Do you remember what? Uh, we'll have to do demolition minutes. Do you remember what uh, uh, Stallone's character's name is? It's perfect. John. I was gonna say John Matrix, but that's Commando. No, I don't know what is it. John Spartan. Oh, very close. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's it. Uh, yeah, I think I'm. Uh, we're done, or I'm done talking about this movie. Do you have anything else that you wanted to say about it, or uh, we think we're over with it? No, I think we I think we covered it pretty well. I think in you know to sum it up, I think this is a solid sci-fi movie from a guy who doesn't do a ton of sci-fi. And uh, yes. for the for the one uh, one asterisk time that he did it, I think he does it pretty well. Yes, I think this is a it's a good movie. It's a four out of five. Um, Maybe not perfect. Has a little bit of too much Spielberginess, and the main thing I take away from it is that I'm just not, I'm not super crazy about Spielberg. I don't think I like. Oh, and I'll because well, you I'll don't have a heart, with, Wes. With this one quote here, which I thought was interesting. Where the hell is it? So, Cruz and Spielberg, at the latter's insistence, reportedly agreed to take 15 percent of the gross instead of any money up front to keep this film's budget under 100 million. Huh. Spielberg had done the same with name actors in the past to great success. Tom Hanks took no cash for Saving Private Ryan, but he made a lot of money on his profit participation. He made this agreement a prerequisite. This is a Spielberg quote. Mm -hmm. I haven't worked with many movie stars. 80% of my films don't have movie stars. And I've told them that if they want to work with me, I want them to gamble along with me. I haven't taken a salary in 18 years for a movie. So if my film makes no money, I get no money. They should be prepared to do the same. Is Hmm. this... Good or bad to do as a filmmaker, in your opinion? Um, well, I want to say it might be a little disingenuous because I assume, I mean, let's put it this way. If Steven Spielberg is making a movie, even though he's not taking a salary, uh, DreamWorks or Amblin is still taking money for it, right? I, I'm not exactly Take, sure how that works, but were well, they putting I mean, up the money? Yes. I mean, they are... I, I, I'd, I'd start off by saying this is something only a multimillionaire would say. Yes. Sort of. Yeah. Um, only a multimillionaire the, or a small independent comic book publisher. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that the, I, think, I think my problem with it is that it exposes 
a drive that Spielberg has for his movies, which is what I think I don't like about it, which mm-hmm. is he is aiming to make this as broad and family friendly as possible each yeah. time. Because he's what he's saying is that I it's a better gamble for me to not just take a contract and get paid a salary. I will make a movie that does ga- uh, gangbusters at the cinema, and I will make more money that way. Well, I don't know. Because, I mean, if you think about it, yes, definitely he does make those kind of movies. But, you know, I don't, I don't know if you could necessarily apply that to Schindler's List or even even Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan is, I, I guess it's sort of a family, f- well, no. I was going to say it's a family-friendly friendly war movie, but that the, the scene where Adam Goldberg gets killed in that movie is still haunts me to this day. Like, every now but, and then I think about it, and it makes me really uncomfortable. But it's not a... It's not a... Um, uh, why can't I think of the name? The Brando... Uh, in Vietnam. Oh, Apocalypse Now? It's not Apocalypse Now. It's not like a... True. It's, it, and it's not... Um, Oliver Stone platoon like it's it's not a it's a war movie that is violent and very sad and emotional but you feel good about it you know that's, like that's it's true you're it's a, it's a war movie that will draw big audience to see it's not incredibly draining or like thought provoking mm-hmm. on any level it's just a good story that's going on and I mean he, but he also has movies in the past handful of years like uh, the terminal sure. about. Tom, Tom Hanks being stuck in an airplane and uh, at an airport for like 25 years, which I mean, I guess you could argue is sort of a is the same kind of story. But I mean, I don't th- know if that was necessarily a, a, a wide, wide, uh, wide release, region, yeah, or not wide release, but like a uh, wide big, appeal, yeah, big, a big, big appeal, big hit, or uh, even Bridge of Spies or uh, The Post. Those those two movies, the last couple that he made, are pretty. Uh, under the radar, I think. I mean, Ready. I think the big the Ready Player One seems like a big return to the other the other way of thinking. But uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think you're. Let's let's put it this way. I don't think you're wrong. Um, but I don't think it's across the board the way that he does things. I could be wrong though. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. No doubt. You see the dilemma, don't you? If you don't kill me. Precogs were wrong and pre-crime is over. If you do kill me, you go away. But it proves the system works. Precogs were right. So what are you gonna do now? What's it worth? Just one more murder. Yeah, so just before we got, uh, we had a little audio mishap there, but I just think it's, I don't hold it against Spielberg to be uh, trying to make money or anything like that. I just I think it's sick the, of you defaming Steven Spielberg. <laughs> He's an American treasure. <laughs> I think that the, I, I think that the issue is more the fact that he's, uh, a certain aim and he's not going to take certain chances i guess would be the way to describe yep. it that i think that's other fair. filmmakers would do so maybe that's what irritates me about uh some not irritates but that's the thing i notice about his movies i guess at this point it's like oh he's not going to go the way that you don't expect this kind of a movie to go i think you know um just to, uh another thing about minority report as far as the spielberg thing goes i actually didn't feel like this was super super spielbergy at least from like the camera work because 
usually that Spielberg push-in moment is fairly obvious, and I feel like it was, if he did it at all, it was pretty subtle in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you, I, I wonder how much is just a distraction of how the post-production of this is done, like how they yeah. made the film lit and, and how they are, they're kind of doing a reverse noir, right? Like it's not dark, but it's overly lit because of the future technology that they're living in. Like everything right. is overexposed. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting, but I it it didn't strike me camera wise it didn't strike me as a spielberg movie it's just kind of the the tone and story making decisions struck me as spielberg yeah yeah i can see that anyway guys thank you very much for listening uh we hope you enjoyed it you can go to patreon.com slash the penske file if you want to support the show it's how you decide what we talk about next and people are putting up options it's going to be an actor uh so the 10 dollar patrons over on patreon have decided on a couple we'll put up a poll and you guys, uh, the rest of the patrons can vote and see who we talk about. It'll be an the, actor uh, this time. What are the options? The options were uh, Denzel Washington and Phil, Phil, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Ooh, both good. <clears throat> Philip Seymour Hoffman's one is weird, so we might have to we might have to sort of come to a decision on how we would do him if you were the one that would win. So those will probably be the two. You guys can vote over there. Uh, outside of that. All the social media links are in the video description and in the podcast blurb. You can check that out. Check out the Star Trek podcast at thepenskypodcast.com. We go through all the Star Trek episodes. Clay, do you have anything you want to say? Uh, no. When's this coming out? This is going to come out Friday, so in two days from when okay. we're recording. So if you're listening to this on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, and you're in the D.C. area, I'll be at the Awesome Con, Comic Con, from uh, Friday through Sunday. So swing by, check it out. Yeah, check them out. Also, then- between... Philip Seymour Hoffman and Denzel Washington. I feel like one of the movies is going to be like four hours long. We're going to have to watch. Denzel's are Fences and Heart Condition, I think. Heart Condition, I ha- I have to watch maybe just because... Heart Condition sounds like the worst movie idea that I've ever heard of in my I'm life. I'm surprised it's not... Um, what the hell's the one The one he did with Russell Crowe? It's like a sci-fi movie. Virtuosity? Oh, vir- virtuosity. Is that it? I'm yep. surprised it's yep. not that. Let's just watch uh, no. that <laughs> I like Virtuosity, actually, but yes, it's not that Philip Seymour Hoffman is the, the other one. I have to look up his. His are wonky, so we'd have to figure it out. Yeah. But anyway, guys, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.